0: Hey, you're listening to Farm to Tabor. One of the things I'm obsessed with as a sustainable agriculture person is this idea that's out there that bad players in agriculture are bad because they're big. Therefore, if we can just remake our ag and food sectors to be made of small businesses, that will fix everything. It's such a beautiful theory, and it doesn't square with anything I've ever seen in real life. I've worked with operations of every size, from tiny to huge multinationals, that are doing things right and operations of every size, from the faceless corporate giants down to literally backyard operations that are crap. Size has nothing to do with it. There is only one thing I've ever seen that's common between operations that do things well, and it's not size, and it's not whether it's family or corporate or how many generations old it is. It's how they treat their workers, period. In my experience, farms and food handling companies that I'd want to work at their money by actually adding value. They make things well and they get it to the end user in good condition. They accomplish that by treating their workers like people who need tools and training to do their job and then making it worth their while to stick around. So they get good at their jobs and become very productive with their time. These companies run a tight ship and treating workers well is really the only way to achieve that in the long term. Farms and food handling companies that don't. They just kind of treat their workers like interchangeable widgets and don't bother thinking through what they might need to accomplish their tasks. Just wind up crappy. They're dirty. They're cluttered. It takes way too long to get anything done because there's all this clutter in the way. And the workforce doesn't care. Why should they when the people running the place don't even care? I saw this pattern over and over and over again while out working in the agriculture world. And it was so different from how everyone both in and outside the industry says agriculture is supposed to work. Small family farms are supposed to be friendly and clean and always nice to everyone and big corporations are dirty. And the only way to make money is by exploiting people. It was just so different what I was actually seeing in real life. And I legitimately started to think I was going crazy until I found out There's actually an entire body of business research into this exact phenomenon. It turns out that across the board in every industry, companies that treat their people well outperform their peers that don't. Exploiting your staff and communities and the environment and all these other behaviors that we've come to associate with big corporate giants are not how you get ahead in life. And they're not what you have to do to win in this cutthroat world at all. They're just how inept operations stay afloat because they're goddamn incompetent and can't figure out how to work with their people to actually generate value. Then they tell you their bad behavior is mandatory so that nobody will hold them accountable. That's what assholes do. They lie. But you know what? We're not here today to talk about assholes. We're here to talk with the safety rep for a company that I've done a lot of gigs with and have been pretty impressed by their facilities and their people and how they run their ship. Chris Summers is the Global Director for Safety for Mission Produce. Mission's main thing is avocados, and the avocado industry in general has a lot of younger people and kind of a different outlook than a lot of the ag industry in general. I think it's really fun. Chris is going to talk with us about the zen of running a bigger company that has a lot of facilities and how to do that with your people so that the wheels don't fall off the whole operation. A big thing I'm trying to do is people kind of have this like small is good, big is bad thing going on. And just from working in agriculture, I feel like size really has nothing to do with it. It's about like, are they competent and do they like have that thing where they actually have the management follow through and like give people the tools they need to succeed. And that has nothing to do with size. Um, I've seen small businesses do well and do badly at that. And big businesses do well and do badly. So one of the things that I want to pick your brain on and just kind of see if you have anything cool to say is like, how do you, you know, as a business with multiple sites that's bigger and could easily fall into some of those traps, how do you avoid that?
1: Wow. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter size. It doesn't matter what type of operation. Everybody can fail or succeed. It's having the best people you can possibly get running the, the program. Yeah, and if you have someone who's really passionate and really driven, you know, chances are it's going to be successful. If you have someone who's more athletic or have no buy-in or clout, kind of or respect from the people, then chances are it's not going to
0: succeed. Right? Yeah. So, have you kind of landed anything that you can do as a company to make sure that you do get people with good buy-in and make sure they stick around and kind of like. Um, not antagonize them so much that they leave. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. And everybody that goes to work, just they go to work, they don't want to be hassled, they don't want to be told what to do. They mm-hmm. kind of want to do their thing, right, and yeah. whatever that is. And, you know, the more regulations you pile on their shoulders and the more you have to, then the more you've got to fill out these forms, mm-hmm. you know, the, the less fun work becomes and the more work it is. Right, and that's not a way to retain or even get good employees good employees want to have fun and be passionate and creative and innovative and if you stifle that you're not going to retain anybody
0: right yeah and I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more because you mentioned like piling on paperwork and the funny thing is like as companies go you guys are actually pretty good at keeping records and paperwork um (laughs) at least in my experience um so I, I, I would have to say, like, obviously that doesn't mean you don't keep records, you don't do that stuff, but you do it in a way that is not micromanagey and actually fits into the stuff that they need to do day to day.
1: Sure. Sure. If, they're, if they have to fill out a paper anyway, try to make that paper as inclusive as possible, so they don't have to do five papers. They just do one, and they meet all requirements. And, you know, usually in, in a lot of the regulations, there's overlap. You have to check something very similar or the same thing to satisfy three or four different areas. So why not do it once and use that one paper for for compliance
0: for everything? Right. Yeah. And that's been such a thing that you run into like when you're doing audits with multiple operations is like, especially the smaller mom and pops. um, So as you guys know, when you, when you ship a product out, we'll kind of explain this for the listeners, when you ship out a truckload of product, you need to have a lot of documentation, you know, what, Product was in there. Uh, you know, what farm did it come from? Traceability stuff. Uh, what was its t- temperature when it left? Did we check the trailer, make sure it's clean? Did we check the product to make sure it's in good condition? There's a lot of stuff you need to document. Plus, like the the invoice number, um, exactly what kind of product was in there? Did it did it match their order? Is it the right kinds of avocados for this customer? So there's a lot of documentation, and there are some questions on a, in food safety audits. They're kind of food safety focused. And I would get like with some clients, they would have, they would have an invoice and they would have a pick ticket and they would have a truck check and like 15 different documents related to this one shipping when maybe like one or two or three would, would do the job. And none of them actually had the information we're looking for in the audit. So they have these 15 different documents and I'm like, okay, well, let's try this one. Let's try that one. And they keep getting more and more frustrated because they're like, she's demanding all these documents. And I'm like, you guys are the ones who made all these redundant documents that don't even do what they need to do. And they'll get really frustrated that they're having to do so much paperwork. And I'm like, you guys just kind of designed your system badly. And that's why you're experiencing a lot of frustration right now. So that's, that's been something that, that comes up is, um, it's not really that there are regulations so much as like, sometimes, like you said, there is a lot of overlap and that's not always handled well internally within the company, and that's not something we really talk about when we talk about why that's frustrating.
1: Sure, and we were at that point years ago also. We had, yes. you know, 15 different forms to ship out a truck. Some were electronic, some were on paper, mm-hmm. some had a stamp on it, and it wasn't until we actually started communicating well that we discovered all this. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times the person doing those checklists is scared to for fear of termination. Right. And finally, these people were saying, "Hey, I'm doing 15 different forms. I don't have time to actually load the truck." Right. And so it, it took some communication, and we said, "Okay, look, let's take a, a year here and find out, go through all the audits that we have, and see what is essential information and what is what is extra, and then what's duplicated, and then we made one form." Yeah. Hey, does this satisfy you and you and you? Well, heck, it does. And it became more efficient. Our people were happier because they did it one time. Uh, and they could actually ship out trucks sometime.
0: Right. So are you suggesting maybe that management has some stuff they need to do to make regulations work in their facility and communicate with their workers and that creates good workforces?
1: Well, you always <laughs> want to explain why someone's doing something. Right. I mean, if you have someone sitting at a desk just, you know, putting a stamp on something day after day, hour after hour, without understanding what happens up and downstream after that, they're really not into their job. Right. Um, you know, if they, if they make a mistake, no big deal, who cares? Right. But if you really sit down and explain, this is how it is before it gets to you. This is what happens after it leaves you. Then they can say, oh, okay, if I make a mistake, 15 people down the line are going to be upset or extra time is going to be tapped onto their job to fix my mistake. Right. So now they have some actual skin in the game and they're going to do a, a better job. They're going to be more efficient and they're going to be more excited about
0: it. Yeah, I think just kind of knowing where you fit into the whole picture can be really, like, <laughs> can be very different than a lot of people have, like, a very different experience than a lot of people have in their, in their job.
1: Sure. I mean, you just want to make you want to know that you make a difference in a company. Yeah. You know, how many people just wander throughout the day, you know, doing their their tasks and they don't think anybody cares? Like they could leave tomorrow and nobody would know they're gone. When in reality, that's, that's not true. I mean, everybody has certain tasks that affect the whole company. Hmm. And if the little details are missed by that one person not doing it, the company will suffer. Right. So giving them that information and, you know, making them feel like they're a part of something bigger is huge. And it does wonders for morale. And suddenly you you do see the quality and efficiency rising.
0: Yeah. And you can't just expect people to read your mind just because they work there. You kind of have to go through that effort of communicating and then just kind of be open with it.
1: And that's where maybe a, a small mom and pop business have an advantage because everything is, is so visible.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, you generally have two or three people who do everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whereas in some of these big businesses, you know, like, like Mission, we have all these distribution centers across the nation and in Canada. You know, they're pretty isolated. They don't see what goes on every day at the corporate office or with auditors and all of that. They only know their little bubble. Yeah, and it's not their fault. That's just in reality. Yeah. So if you can go in there and expand that bubble for them, and say, "This is how you make a difference in the facility," and if you do this, this is what happens, successful or not successful. Yeah. Then they they feel like part of a bigger thing.
0: Yeah. See, like we started this conversation. You're like, "Well, I don't know what we do, but I, I think you have some ideas." <laughs> <laughs> about how you do that sure that's awesome sure. yeah um so to open it up for for anybody who may be listening a little bit more uh you guys work with avocados could you walk us through where avocados come from like if you go to a grocery store what has that avocado seen that you're picking up at the store well
1: regardless of where in the world avocados have grown there, there's very similar conditions here. Mm -hmm. So avocados need a, like a a Mediterranean coastal climate. Mm -hmm. Um, So you see a lot around the equator, um, Central America, Mexico, South America. Uh, In the United States, avocados, we're talking hot avocados, are really only grown on the California coastline between San Diego and we'll say Paso Robles. So It's a tree. It it starts as a tree with no fruit, just leaves on there, and as uh, it grows and matures, usually the third or fourth year, it starts actually producing fruit. And like any fruit tree, it starts with a flower. The avocado flower is very tiny, and it's green, so it kind of blends into the foliage, and it's very hard to see. But as the weather improves, that flower actually matures into a fruit. Uh, just like apples and peaches and, and oranges, um, and you you have to manage your your orchards. You know, fertilizer, um, irrigation, pesticides if if you need them. Um, and then you know, after a while, you, you harvest the avocados. Um, now the avocado industry. Kind of choosy as to when you can harvest the fruit,
0: right? Because there's uh, something there's something funny about their ripening process. <laughs> well, and, and like they, <laughs> their growth process on the tree.
1: Yeah, avocados generally do not ripen on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they're either really hard or they fall off and they decay. Mm-hmm. um so it's not like uh, a peach or something you know where you leave it on and pluck it just at the right moment you can eat it right there um, <laughs> avocados unfortunately are not like that yeah. so yeah it's avocado brightness is is based on the oil content so when the oil is is at a certain level the avocado industry says now you can harvest them and you can you know heat them up or whatever you want to do to get them ripe and and consume so once that oil level is at its, its right stage, then you start harvesting, and it enters into the packhouse. Nice. Uh, and different different producers do it different ways, um, being very general here, but packhouses generally you know, clean off the dirt, whether it's through brushes or uh, water or some kind of post-harvest chemical, um, and then they're put in boxes and distributed to retail or wholesalers.
0: Great. Okay. Okay. Um, and we can, we can like cut this out if you don't want to talk about it. But, uh, in terms of the ripening process, so, uh, the trees, or excuse me, when the fruit's on the tree, like, will it ever go ripe eventually on its own or does it like need some kind of intervention to get to like the avocado that we know?
1: Avocados do need an intervention. So like I said, it's, it'll be on the tree hard or it'll fall off and decay. Mm-hmm. It, it will not soften on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so avocados, like all other fruits, ripen through ethylene. That's the natural gas that uh, fruit gives off to ripen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need ethylene. Um, you can speed up the ripening process by Either concentrating the ethylene, you know, at home you can put it in a brown paper bag or in the, the drawer in your refrigerator to keep that ethylene localized so it, it absorbs more. Yeah. Or you can heat it up. So put it on the windowsill, you know, under the sun, or put it in a bag under the sun, and that way you're getting the concentrated ethylene and the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the big producers um, generally add heat and ethylene to expedite that process so they can you know fulfill orders and get these you know truckloads of of avocados out to the retailers
0: right okay so it's kind of funny because avocados you can almost like they'll they'll keep on the tree for a long time without ripening like you said is that correct correct. Okay. Um, so, like, a farmer can kind of decide, like, okay, like, it's the Super Bowl is coming, and there's going to be a big order of avocados, so I'm going to pick all my avocados in time for the Super Bowl kind of thing. Like, they, they keep really well on the tree, they won't ripen, they won't go bad.
1: True, the yeah. Way? So, the, the growers of avocados, it's really a chess game, uh, <laughs> because you have all these countries of origin coming into play in different times of the year. Mm-hmm. So, Sure, Super Bowl is a huge day for avocados. So a lot of uh, growers look at their trees and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna either strip all my fruit off um, and leave nothing, or I'm gonna side pick and only pick the big piece of the fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're gonna get money for that. So as the year progresses, let's say Cinco de Mayo is, is another big day. Um, well, at that time you have Mexico, you have Peru, you have Chile, you have a lot of different countries harvesting fruit. So the California grower would look at that and say, okay, if I harvest now, since the market is already full of other countries, I may not get a good return on it. So I'm gonna hold my fruit, the fruit's gonna grow in size, and I'm gonna pick in July or August. And that way I'll get a better return. Mm-hmm. So it really is a strategic for for growers, no matter where in the world you are. Uh, you know, growers of course want the best return for their money, so they have to look at the markets and see where the the need is and harvest right at that time.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So avocados kind of unique in that way, just because there is a lot of flexibility on when you can pick them, just because. They have a really interesting physiology of how they ripen they don't just ripen on a tree when they're going to do it like other fruit do they can kind of um you can kind of choose when it happens which is interesting
1: exactly yeah to
0: some extent you can't completely control the
1: tree it'll grow in size but it it will not get ripe so there is an advantage to leaving them on a tree because you will get a bigger avocado which Mm -hmm. generally is sold for more money Uh, but you know it, it reaches that 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 bending point where, hey, that's too big. You know, no one's going to (laughs) pay that much money in a retail store for that because, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to take a family of 10 to eat it. Amazing. Uh,
0: I would love to see one of those. It really is a chess game
1: with growers.
0: Interesting. That's so interesting, yeah, because I I think when we talk about fruit, you know, we um, there's a lot of the fruit in our supply chain really do kind of have that, um, you know, that deadline when they have to pick it off a tree. And so we're used to kind of thinking of stuff as having seasons and in the horticulture industry as – you know, there's a certain time when you have to get your pit crew out there, and there's a little bit of a panic about it, um, and avocado just works really differently. So, like, as someone who works in the industry, I just really find that interesting.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, avocados usually have, generally, I'm, I'm here saying here, about okay. a 30-day shelf life before um, they actually start to kind of go bad. Right. So... Um, You know, with with citrus or, um, you know, other commodities, you can harvest a lot and put it in a room and kind of distribute as the market dictates, Mm -hmm. you know, degreen the citrus and get it, throw a bunch out of the industry. Well, with avocados, you really only have about 30 days to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, So juggling all the countries of origin, juggling the harvest uh, intervals from the growers, um, you really just want to... Take what you have in inventory, ripen it, and get it out there immediately. <laughs> so there isn't a lot of flexibility, and the sales job in avocados is it's fairly difficult because of that short shelf life. Right. Kind of like how strawberries, you know, have a, a four to five day shelf life. Can not right. imagine the sales job for that? Uh, you know, you have a deadline, and if you don't meet that, you end up dumping a lot of a lot of produce that people could be eating.
0: Right. Yeah. And um, I guess we should also clarify for listeners too. So a common frustration with avocados is you get it from the store and it's rock hard and, or, you know, it's pretty close and then it's ripe. It feels like for about five minutes and then it starts to go bad. So (laughs) Um, so kind of tying that into the ripening cycle. So that would be um, when you pick that fruit up at the store, it's kind of had that Moment where we kind of give it some heat and some ethylene to let it know, like, okay, bud, it's time to ripen, and then that process begins. And so it's kind of like it is on kind of a timeline once you pick it up at the store. So when you say 30 days, that's before we do the, the ripening cues. Is that right?
1: That's correct, yeah. Once it ripens, you, you know, depending on how far it goes or how quickly it goes, um, you generally have about a week before it, it starts to go bad. Really? Uh, kind of like you know, you know, kid, kids, right? They're they're great, they're having fun, they're having fun until suddenly they're not. And they let like, <laughs> you know right away. You know, an avocado is like that. It's good, it's good, hey, now I'm done. You know, eat right. me now or it's, I'm done.
0: Right, it's like the, the avocado distribution chain is so much like parenting. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I did learn from you guys from working with your facilities, which I thought was really useful, was um, there are a lot of tropical fruit and warm weather fruit that you can't put in a refrigerator like peaches and tomatoes. And so I had thought that avocados were one of those, but you guys are storing them in cooled warehouses. And so um, so at home, I started putting my avocados in the fridge once I thought they were about right, but I wasn't going to get to them for a day or two. Works great. So a uh, tip for you guys at home, <laughs> you can put avocados in the fridge.
1: Yes, the the gray temperatures are between 38 and 42 degrees. Um, You know, if if your fridge is around there, feel free to put it in there, and it it will allow the avocado shelf life to be
0: extended a bit. Yeah, it's not just, like, going to go crazy bad all of a sudden while you're not looking, so.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: That's part one of a two-parter with Chris Summers, head food safety honcho for Mission Produce, We covered some workplace basics and some Avocado 101. Stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to talk workplace psychology, engagement, feelings, and uh, the blockchain.